Welcome to the Talent Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Calvin Fisk, here with Katie Gergen, and we're here with Mr. Borskin, the ceramics teacher at CB. And we're going to be talking about his history in the Vietnam War and... Just a little bit about uh, his thoughts on developments in artificial intelligence uh, and his love for ceramics. So stay tuned for all of this and more <laughs> on this episode of the Talent Talk podcast. So hi, Mr. Borskin. Hi, how are you? Can you tell us what you do here at CB? Yes, uh, I'm a ceramic instructor. Uh, I teach uh, two classes of ceramics. Uh, and I've been here since 2006. And in 2006, I actually taught ceramics, introduction to art, and 3D art. And over the years, it turned into just ceramics. How did you get into ceramics? Well, how I got into ceramics is um, I did a little tour in Vietnam, and when I returned, I went to Moore Park Junior College, and I was looking for a class that sounded like fun, and I took a ceramics class, and that's all it took. (laughs) I just fell in love with it. It was something really natural, and I've been doing it ever since. Um, That first year I took ceramics, the instructor wanted an assistant, And then the next semester, I was teaching other students how to do ceramics. And I've been teaching people to do ceramics uh, since uh, 1960. Oh, that was a long time ago, 1969. So, yeah, long time. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier, but uh, when I, on like the last open house, I spent most of the time in your room just Uh throwing, like doing ceramics. It's really like, it's almost like kind of like a peaceful, calming thing to do. Do you ever have like, get that feeling oh, just... I think that happened to me the very first time I sat on the wheel and it must have happened to you too yeah. it's just something it's physical and it's um, but there's movement there too so you're in a stationary position but the things are moving and it, yeah it just it feels and then when things start working like mm-hmm. when it gets centered and when it actually comes up in the air and you can do that yeah it's pretty amazing yeah yeah it's, a, it's just a great feeling when you're like able to create something with your own hands yeah and just See it start out as that little blob of clay, and then yeah. say, oh, this is a bowl now, just yeah. being able to say, oh, I did this. And I think we live in a world, I know I spent 32 years of my life um, as a bureaucrat working for the state of California, and I produced a lot of things, but not real tangible things, not things you can hold or give to people. Um, I love giving ceramics as a gift, and it's a so it's sort of... I'm there creating something, but I'm not just creating it for that moment. I'm creating it, and then it becomes a, an opportunity for me to touch somebody else. So, yeah, I like it. <laughs> I like what I get to do. How did you come to CB with your talents? Like, why did you decide to teach kids how to do it? So, had a long history, but I'm, I'm working for the state of California. I'm getting close to retirement, and I'm... And I've been doing ceramics in my, my own house uh, for years, okay? Uh, and so then I, I, I find a job at, at UC Davis in their craft center, uh, initially mixing glazes, but later teaching ceramics there. And so as I got to the end of my state career, my kids were going to school here, my son and my daughter. And my daughter took ceramics from Mr. Haig. And right when I was in that transition, uh, he decided to leave. He had a daughter who he wanted to spend more time with and things like that. He had 15 days left in the semester and he knew I was a potter. So he called me and he said, Hey, would you teach my ceramics class for 15 days? I said, Oh yeah, I can help. So I came in 
And at the end of the 15 days, uh, they came to me and said, whoa, how would you like to teach here? <laughs> and that's how I ended out here. And I've been here for 13 years. That's really cool. Like, um, so it was kind of just like a coincidence that all this just kind of yeah, you know, came they, together? You talk about things like that a lot in life mm-hmm. that were just things sort of fall in place. So I've been working in the state for 32 years. The last job I had in state government wasn't as satisfying as some of the other ones. So I was looking for other things. I started teaching at UC Davis, and then my kids were both at school here, and then Mr. Haig decides to leave, and I go, okay, I'll help out, and then helping out turned into uh, probably the most fun 13 years of my life, so yeah, worked out good. What's it like being a teacher instead of just a parent Uh, at CB? At CB? Yeah. That's interesting because the transition, my daughter was a senior when I got here. My son had already graduated. Um, And one of the really nice things they did is my daughter was a senior. I only was here for 15 days. But when she graduated, I got to put on a gown and stand on stage (laughs) and hand her her diploma. Um, So I never really had, I mean, as a parent, I was just a parent. I was off. You know, one of the things I did notice as a teacher versus a parent is the amount of effort that was made by the teachers on this campus to create a good learning environment. I sort of took it for granted as a parent. You know, my kids were here and they were doing what they had to do and that was fun. But when I got into the classroom and started teaching, I sort of understood the effort and the time and the care and the concern that was uh, offered. Yeah. Yeah, I do think that's kind of a special thing with CB because you see a lot where people that come here uh, oftentimes make the decision to stay. They either come back as teachers or like what you didn't like start teaching here. And of course you've been doing it for a long time. seems like you've yeah. enjoyed your time. And um, I just see that a lot with the teachers and everyone here that uh, it's just something that stays with you. Almost. Yeah. I think um, I, I'm a reader. I'm always reading books. And I think one of the things that's really missing in our, in our world today is very many communities. Uh, we were in community when we were a long time ago, our little tribes, our little this, our little that, we've got so big, our societies are so big that most people don't have any sense of community. So what they have is they may have their family, they may have some group they belong to. A lot of people are just real, living for themselves, their own individual life. And that's pretty lonely, I think. I think when you find a place where you can feel part of community, that's pretty special. And I think that's what happens to people who come here. I do see that a lot where um, there's a bunch of people who try to connect with their own kind of little sect. Like uh, a lot of people do with music and stuff or like just things that they enjoy um, where they just find like a group of people that they kind of think the same. Yeah, like-minded people yeah. to kind of share their experience with the world around them. Yeah. The book I'm reading is called The Second Mountain, and it talks about in the 60s. At one, before the 60s, we were more community, but it was a community that actually kind of controlled and regulated you a lot. There was a lot of rules. And then in the 60s, there was a real break from that, and the individual became prime. And we all got worried about being individuals. I was part of that change and grew my hair real long and did all those things. So we really became individuals, but we got so individual we lost something much more important. And I think there's a lot of us in older people who are going, wait, we've lost something by holding on to or being too focused on just being an individual, you know? Yeah, I I do think finding your own group can be, like, really rewarding 
because I spent a long time like searching for like some place where like you fit in, and I think just within the last few years, being able to just find a like a group of people that I connect with almost has just been one of like the greatest things that yeah. I've ever experienced. And um, I don't know if that would have really happened without like just the atmosphere here at CB. Yeah, a, a lot of us, including myself, my family is my community, and I feel very fortunate. I have a very close extended family and that's important and it works and it solves a lot of it but that's a that can be that's maybe not enough for all of us we want that plus other things so and other people that are sharing similar things you know so yeah you said well we're gonna have this podcast and i said what do you want to talk about and you said well a bunch of things and then one of them was the military and it was really oh, yeah. interesting because when i sat down to think about that i was 19 years old in 1967 right i'm 19 years old i'm living at home I'm working at Cal. I'm working at uh, uh, Forest Lawn, putting flowers on graves. That was my job. Uh, I was surfing every time I had a chance, and I had friends, and I did things like that. Um, and my life was really free and comfortable, right? But at the same time, there's this war going on, and I came home at night with my family, and we'd watch TV, and we'd see the statistics on how many people died and who it was, and all that stuff, and it was just terrifying. And I was just in that stage where I didn't understand the war. I didn't know why it was going on. And I'm sitting there in the midst of this. And then I flunk out of school because I was uh, spending a lot of time surfing. And I was really a good surfer, but not a very good student. And I find uh, I'd saved enough money working at uh, Forest Lawn. I took a trip to Florida. And I'm in Florida at my grandma's. And I get a call. And my dad says, you've been drafted. And it was like the whole world came crashing down around me. It was the weirdest thing, you know. And it was like, it's, su- su- uh, it's just unreal. I mean, I'm really glad you all don't face a draft. But to be faced with the situation where here I was, just a guy having fun, living a life, trying to be decent and stuff like that, and all of a sudden, everything changed, you know. Um, January 16th of 1968, my dad dropped me off at the induction center. And then six months later, I found myself in Vietnam. So it's like just such a huge change in one's life. And I I don't realize very often, but every once in a while, when people like you ask me these kinds of questions, I reflect back on that and think about how much that sort of altered my life. You know, Um, you're going to go through the things that will alter your life. That was the significant, the one significant life-altering experience I had. And mine was really pleasant, you know. Um, other people have asked me, and I've told you, I got lucky. I ended up being a clerk. I ended up being in Saigon. And in Saigon, it was like a job with some bombs going off every once in a while. And uh, I eventually made a good friend, a woman that I met over there, Tron Han, And I learned a bunch of things, and I came of age. And it was sort of a very, very different experience than most people hear about Vietnam. And I think it should be balanced that way. Because both things happened. There was a lot of people whose lives were changed permanently. And there were people like me who were significantly impacted. So, yeah. Anyhow. I think that would be like an interesting, or at least I kind of want to hear like your story on this. Um, like how having those formative like events in your life be in like a whole different country during wartime. And just because um, we're probably not going to have any like similar experience to that. And just how that kind of helped you develop or like just become the person that you are. Yeah, once again, as 
whenever I reflect on, you know, once a week I go to, uh, once a year I go to Miss Kenny's class and I do a little presentation. I've written a book about my experience over there, which will probably never get published because it's not all that interesting. But it was interesting to me and it's been helpful to me to kind of think through that process. Um, but part of what made my experience over there maybe a little different is I'm Jewish. I was raised in a primarily Christian community. And what happened is I felt discrimination my whole life. So I grew up with discrimination as being part of how life was. You know, you all went and celebrated Christmas and I had to go wait in the house, you know. <laughs> Just this kind of weird, different thing. So when I landed in Vietnam, most of, the, most of the people I landed there with were angry at the Vietnamese. They thought they were the people who caused their pain, caused them to be in this place. And I didn't feel that. And that sort of things that happened to me very young, I think allowed me to make friendships and to make connections that I wouldn't have had. And you're right, you won't have that, but I, you'll have something different. Uh, you know, people go off to college and have experiences. People do their whatever and they have the experiences. You'll figure it out. Um, but each one of us, it's gonna be a little different for us, I think, yeah. Well, um, just on a different kind of topic. Yeah. Um, so you, you have Will Furman in your class this year. Yes, I do. He's one of my friends, uh -huh. and um, he said, if you're going to interview Mr. Borskin, you have to ask him about AI. Uh -huh. And uh, I understand you kind of spoke on this a little earlier, but I understand you have like a very forward-thinking view with all this AI-type stuff, because most people, like, I think, are really scared, but you seem to like embrace it, and I kind of want to hear your whole like stance on that. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Mostly what's important to me about AI is that I think it's foolish to think the world we have today is what's going to be the future. And in education where we are, I think what we need in the future is people who think outside of the box, creative people, people that can challenge the things that are out there. Machines are going to do all the drudgery. Machines will count and add and speak foreign languages and do all that. What we need is people who are creative, to solve problems, okay, that can work independent, that can work together with each other. So that's, that's the part of it that is driving me. Am I afraid of it or do I, am I concerned about it? It's change. Uh, we're going to all be faced with change. Um, it has the potential of creating a lot of free time for us to have really wonderful lives. <laughs> I make all my students answer this question. I did the video and then talking about AI. And their question is, if in the future, artificial intelligence takes care of all of your basic necessities, how would you spend your time? It's my wife. Yeah, sorry. Um, uh, how would you spend your time? And the answers are just fascinating, okay? Um, it's divided... I don't know. I mean, I could do the math, but it's divided about 70% say, well, I'd do all the things I enjoy doing. I'd travel, I'd spend more time with friends, I'd learn new things, I'd do stuff like that, you know. Uh, some of them say, another 20-something percent say, I'd play video games all day long. I would just veg out, you know, that's, uh, that's great, you know. And then there's 2 or 3% that say, I'd get really good at uh, martial arts and uh, using bombs and things like that so I could blow up all the artificial intelligence, you know. So there, there's a spectrum of sort of people. How do we deal with this future? But it's here, you know. It's not, it's not like 100 years from now. It's here right now, and I read articles all the time on it. And it has wonderful potential, but it, has, it should be something we think about. And don't let it catch us off guard so that we can make 
good human informed decisions on how to use it. You know, I do think because I've heard well, I've heard some stuff about it that it's almost like um, like a guaranteed next step in what's like the technology and everything. So um, just with that, like knowing that it's going to happen, I think that instead of being afraid of it and like, you know, having this fear of all AI and just saying that it's bad and like dissing and putting it off completely, just I think it's better to kind of make sure it's guided like the right direction in order to truly be like the most prosperous thing for like humans and everything. So just making sure that what's happening is what's best for everyone is better than just being overly consumed by worry about it. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> I think it's really important to worry about our heart and soul, okay? And our heart and soul want good things. I think we as human beings start out that way. But we're easily distracted. And what we can't be is distracted by the things that are around us. We have to be aware of them and conscious of them so that we can make informed choices. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I agree with you. Yeah. How and would you answer that question that you ask your students? Um, I, I would pursue all the things I love. I would spend more time doing the things I enjoy doing. Um, and I would also want to be um, involved in whatever monitoring is taking place of how artificial intelligence is uh, taking over all of those basic things. I wouldn't want to leave it to itself. Yeah, I think it's important that we're well informed on like this change since it's it's going to be such a big part and technology can easily like overcome us if if we let it get too powerful and yeah. if we don't stay informed. You know, it's really interesting as a teacher, one of the things we have to monitor in our classes is the use of cell phones and things like that. Okay. It's kind of just part of this job. And there's lots of choices on how you approach that. One is as students come in, you take all of their devices away from them and you put it somewhere. And that works. That's a, that's an option. I've chosen something slightly different. I say you don't use it in my class, that this class is intended for you to talk to each other, interact, work with Clay, and do those things. And then students bring out their phones, and then I tell them to put them away. But we have to learn, and I, I think the reason I don't want to take it away and make it gone completely is you have to learn how to manage that stuff. You know, I'm not going to be there. No one else is going to be there all the time. If you find yourself spending all your evenings playing you know, video games, that's probably not the best thing for you. And if you don't figure out how to manage that or monitor that, that's a problem. And in the future, as more and more things, have you guys seen Wally? Yes. Yeah. I okay, I love that movie. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Hogan introduced me to that. Mm -hmm. And you look at that and you go, oh, that could happen. We could yeah. all be floating around in those things, drinking those sodas, and our lives would be, we don't want that, you know. And so I think it's really important to stay focused on the things that are important to us. And, I, you know, I do value being at a school that allows us to think about and care about moral, ethical values and not be embarrassed about that because it is important. We should keep that on the forefront, you know. I think that, like, with the whole, like, Wally kind of scenario type stuff, um, staying, like, keeping the ability to monitor and, like, really question the things that are happening around you and like not just passively allowing things to happen, but like, as I was talking about before, like making sure that everything happens the right way and that you are, you like accept the outcome of what's being done and like, not just 
you know, hopping aboard the ship because everyone's doing it and then just letting them just take all of, like everything you're doing away and just be yeah. some person just floating around those little like hover chairs or whatever. The scary thing for me about that, and, and it's funny that I, I can reflect back on my experience in Vietnam when I was 19 years old. I had no idea what the war was about. I didn't know why we were there. I didn't know what the two sides were. I was a 19-year-old kid wanting to surf and do things like that. So today, I try to stay informed. There's too much going on out there. I mean, I can't follow what's going on in the world. So to say we need to be aware and do that, that I agree, but I don't know how we get there. Okay, what worries me is how do we do that? What do we put in place? Systems, because we have to have systems of some kind. I think societies join together and we develop laws and codes and because we have to figure out how to work together. We're going to have to figure out how to work together in a future that's going to be very, very different than mine, you know. So. Yeah, I think, yeah, the, a lot of the cooperation is probably the most essential part of that just because, like you said, there isn't a way for every person to be completely, like, informed on every topic. So if there are people getting, like... A certain, like a certain amount of knowledge, trustworthy people who are informing themselves on certain topics and we all work together to make sure that all of it is coming together like well, then that's probably like the only solution that we have. Yeah. But that communication and that, you know, when I look at how many people vote, when I look at how many people participate in things, it scares me. And when I think about how informed people are or aren't informed about what's going on and decisions that people make, it scares me. And at that, you know, I think it's reasonable to be concerned and then try to create plans to overcome that concern. The Bicentennial Man, have you ever seen that movie? I've heard of it. I don't think I've actually seen <laughs> My it. My wife was actually in that movie. She, she did some modeling at one time, and she was the... She was the um, uh, representative from Vietnam in this one scene. Anyhow, kind of. But they're the three laws. They had the three laws for robots because it's all about robots, okay? Mm -hmm. And the three laws were never harm a human. I forget what they were. But it was like, we have to figure what our three laws are. You know, how are we going to take this phenomenal power that's out there that has the potential to make our lives way better than it, you know, to get rid of the drudgery, to get rid of the repetitive and give us a chance to really be the best human beings we can but control all the things that are going on around us. So, yeah. yeah. I don't really know how I'd answer like that. Um, I think it's it's tough to figure out uh, exactly what you need to regulate and what the rules need to be if you don't understand exactly how things are going to play out, like, or how everything works, or just... Um, because I don't know what how AI will progress in the co coming years, so I don't know exactly what needs to be checked and everything. Uh, just one of the kind of sort of simple things that's going on now is uh, all the self-driving vehicles, right? So you have a self-driving vehicle, and you go, wow, that's really cool. I can just jump in the car, and it'll get me where I want, yeah. until one runs somebody over. And then you go, oh, that wasn't good. And then you go, well, what was the what was the log or the what are the whatever those things called the the programming that was in it that said okay if there's a warm body here and there's a tree over here if you hit the tree the person in the car will die if you hit the warm body over there well that person's die but your guy's going to be safe i mean what's going on inside of the brain us humans have to make that decision when we're driving down the road all the time turning that over to something the i guess the information out there on on self-driving vehicles is they are 
way safer than us driving because we fall asleep and we get distracted and we do those things. So I'm, I like that idea. But then I realize that within that choice, then we've got some other things we have to think about, you know. Yeah, I've, I've heard a few things about that. I have heard that it is safer with a self-driving vehicle because there's no room for human error and that type of thing. Because um, you were mentioning like the moral decisions that a person would make. Yeah. And of course, with AI, we wouldn't be making those decisions, but we also wouldn't be making like the decisions to drink and drive or whatever or to just like drive while we're like tired and fall asleep and everything like that or distracted. Um, and I also know that there are some online things going around that um, ask a bunch of questions about what a, like a car that like a self-driving car would do in an accident. Like the whole question of does it hit the person? Does it crash the car and kill the driver? There are like surveys where people can answer those questions and I think that might have an effect on what's programmed into the cars. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to get better, and I think we're going to improve. But, I mean, statistically, if you – I think they've done this. They said if all cars were AI, the number of deaths would be this. And if we still have humans in it, the number of deaths is this. So you're making choices, but these are mm-hmm. tough choices, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. It's just uncomfortable because we've never had anything like this before. So it's like – it's scary to trust the cars. Yeah. I have one of those cars, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. So, but it does. I, I don't have the self-driving, but it has a lot of other things. I have a new car, and I like it because I'm driving, and it'll beep at me, and I'll go, "Why are you beeping at me?" And then I'll say, "Oh well, I'm far enough away from that car." But it has rules that are better. It says that car is slowing down, and at the rate you're going, you may have a collision. So I'm going to warn you at this point. My son's car does the same thing. You start to change lanes, it actually pulls you back into the lane. So there's a whole bunch of that technology already in place being used, and I think we're learning. And I'm hoping we just get better and better at, at, at it all the time. You know? Yeah, there have been like a lot of good increases in like safety features on cars. Because I know I used to drive a 1982 Chrysler Baron. Okay. That was not safe at all. Uh, which is probably, it's kind of the reason I had to get rid of it. But I do think that even though I really enjoyed driving that and it was, it was fun to have, uh, I think that trading that in for some extra features like that would be like, it's a good trade off. Yeah. We have a, uh, what do we have? A, a 2010 Honda Civic. When I have to drive that, I hate it because <laughs> it doesn't warn me. It doesn't do any of those things. And, you know, it's a car and it drives well and it gets me from A to B. But I have to be that much more intense. And then I'm worried. I now back up with the car that has a backup camera and all that. And it all that's there. With my Honda Civic, I got to turn. I have to look. I have to, you know. So, yeah. I worry that if the technology ever, like, crashes or something or goes away, that no one will be able to do the skill like drive for themselves anymore yeah. and they won't have those skills <laughs> even in the short time we've had our car yeah. which is 100 percent electric every once in a while i have to go to the gas station i go oh wait how do i do this <laughs> i mean it's just it's funny uh, we went last night and i went oh yeah i still remember how to do it but you do we quickly get adjusted you know we adjust to the things that are around us you know yeah. well i think with at least, at least with that example i think it's a good kind of trade-off like Oh, I forgot how to pump gas, but now I'm driving an electric car that's better yes. for the environment, yes. safer, yeah. more advanced. So I think even like just as that goes, that kind of 
signals to me that a lot of these trade-offs are probably worth it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that that's why I am not, I don't, I don't sit in my room being afraid. It, I, I'm not one of my 2% of my students who want to get a gun and shoot everything that's AI. I, I don't feel that way. But I do want to be aware. I want to be thoughtful. I want to be, I want to be conscious of what we're, the choices we're making. You know, I don't want to just build something and then find out, oh, that's not a good thing, you know. Yeah, I think it's important that we don't let technology take over our lives, but just improve it while still like maintaining control. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people are dealing with right now. It's that active, like, because with all the technology we have right now, everybody's becoming more connected through it. But it's also that thing of being able to connect with like a phone or something but maintain balance to connecting to someone in real life and like having a physical connection as well as using these new this new technology to like its fullest extent and being able to have connections all over the place as well. Yeah. So my, just finding a balance. My class is unplugged. You come in, the rules are clear. And I watch students and I believe they're happier. <laughs> I come on campus in the morning and I walk through campus and 90% of the students are not looking at each other. 90% of the people, and that's not just students, it's teachers, it's not just young people, it's not your issue. My wife is probably worse than almost anybody. They're all lost in their phone, and they're communicating. But you're right, it's a very, very different kind of communication. In my classroom, those things are gone, and they're talking to each other. And I see that human interaction that I think is very, very important. You know, and... Uh, but we've got, we've, we've got to learn how to manage this thing. I mean, I think that's, if we've been talking, that's the thing that is the most important, it seems like. You know? Yeah, I know there's like, well, throughout my time like here, um, there's always been some classes where it's like, oh, this class, it's easy to like get distracted. You can play games on your iPad or do something like that. And then um, like... But still, those classes I don't enjoy as much as the ones where it'd be like, oh, I get to interact with like my other students and like see my like have like an actual kind of connection my like with my friends in the class, um, and I just think that uh, all like although I do enjoy and like use the connections that I'm being given, uh, sometimes even if I might do that too much, I think it's better. At least I have, I enjoy myself more when I am like not doing that as much when there's like more people around. Like, I do think it does a good job of like filling the gaps in time, kind of. Like, if I have nothing to do or something, I think it's a good thing because then I get to watch something that like I enjoy or do something that I enjoy on here. But then also being able to put it away and then do something else yeah. that I kind of enjoy more. Yeah. I mean, I think our whole lives we have to put some discipline in them. So as you get older, I need to exercise more. I watch what I eat. We do, those are all kinds of things. And one of the other things I should do is watch my use of the phone, watch my use of the computer. Don't get myself over. We need a balance. Life requires some balance. So, yeah. But I do see that in the classroom. What you're saying, I've seen in my classroom. They, people look happier. They're talking to each other. You know, they're, they're messing with clay. They're doing something. But they're actually that kind of human connection is being made, and I think it's important. So, yeah. Yeah. Earlier you mentioned that you wanted to get like, a chip implanted <laughs> <Yes>. in you. <laughs> Can you explain that? Yeah, so Elon Musk, I have a Tesla. So Elon Musk has a, a, a 
uh, business in San Francisco. It's actually been operating f- since 17, I think, a uh, couple years. It's called Neuro, Neuro something. And the future, he says, is we're going to have a chip inside of us. And that chip will connect to the internet. So what makes us slower than computers is our ability to access information. We have to remember it. We have to do all those. Computers can just, boom, get the internet and get the answer to the things you want. So get the chip. And then when I'm sitting there and you ask me a question, I go, I don't know how you'd access it. I don't know enough about the technology. But you'd actually have access to the internet. And now humans would have both all of the normal human powers Plus, they'd have the additional power of complete access. They, they've done a lot of a lot of the AI stuff I read is they say, well, oh, like um, I think uh, operating on your eyes. Well, machines can do it a lot better. You know why? Because you can push a button. The machine can look at a million operations and say, compare it to your eye and then say, oh, of those million operations, the best process for us is to go step one, two, three. Where a doctor would say, oh, I've had a thousand I've done a thousand of these eye things, and he can make a choice. Well, a thousand compared to a million, I'd rather the million do it. I'd rather a computer be making decisions if they're going to cut into me or if they're going to do something like that. And you see tons of advances in in the medical world, and a lot of what's being done now is going to be gone. What you don't see and what we have to hold on to is the human connection. I still want a human being there talking to me saying, I've got this computer over here that's really good at telling you what we need to do, but don't worry, I'll be there and I care about you. Because I do think that human connection is just really super important. Yeah, Yeah. it's definitely important because we relate to humans because we are humans and we will never understand like what's going on through technology. No, you won't. I mean, well, we'll, we're going to build it. We created it, but... (laughs) We aren't technology, so yeah. it's more comforting yeah. with human contact. Yeah. They, I have my little chart. Uh, another book I've read uh, is uh, uh, Kai-Fu Lee wrote a book on, uh, what is it, Sil- uh, AI, the Silicon Va- China and the Silicon Valley. And then it has this really cool chart. And he says, well, these are the jobs that are at real risk right now. And these are the jobs that are slow creep. They're going to go away, but slowly. And these are the jobs which will have the human veneer. That means they won't, the human won't have to do the work. And these are the safe jobs. And then I take that chart and altered it and put ceramic expert on here because that, you know, that's what I'm teaching. But it's a really, it's an interesting look. Truck drivers, uh, you know, there's so many things in this bottom corner that are out. The technology is going to take care of that. Um, the slow creep are the things that are going to take a little longer. The human veneer okay, there's going to still be a human there to talk to you, but some computer is going to be making the decision. What's going to remain are the creative jobs, the independent thinking, the, the people that can work with each other, and that's where we should be spending our energy, I think, teaching, teaching students, giving them those skills. Because when you leave here, your ability to add 5 and 5 and get to 10 is going to be not very important, unfortunately, because a computer will do it a lot faster, a lot better than you. But your ability to relate to human beings, to have conversations, to bring out ideas, that's real important. And obviously that's what you guys are doing. Yeah. Technology only knows what we tell it. So what's important is the new ideas that we come up with. Yeah. Yeah. I know that, like, um, when I was raised kind of, uh, when my parents talk about, like, finding a career in the future, 
they always mention stuff like you need to find a job that you know will still be a job when you are looking for a career. So I say keep like keep in mind the new advancements and everything and what is actually going to be sticking around so that you're not out of a job later in life and like back to square one. I think that's really important to like know what's lasting and yeah. then do that. It's funny. My son's the one who got me into AI. He's an attorney. <laughs> and, and if you read stuff on AI, most of the attorney jobs are gone. Okay. Because the stuff they're doing is just applying logic to something. There will still be some litigating and other things that are happening, but that whole world is gone, okay? So he's real curious about it. I don't know why, but just because he's curious about it. But it is, there's changes, and it's down the road. And, and, and I don't, what I don't like, and Mr. McIntosh and I talk about this all the time, is I don't want any student to live their life being afraid. That doesn't do you any good, but you need to be conscious. Let's stay away from fear and let's move to consciousness. Let's be aware that, yes, things are changing and we can play a role in that. Like your parents suggested, look around. What kind of jobs are still going to be there? And those are the ones you should go for, you know. Um, but just make choices like that and find things to entertain you outside of golf and other important things like that. No, they're real important because I think we are going to have more time. If you look back historically, I've read a bunch of books on that, you know, we had long, hard days when, you know, our grandparents and their grandparents, they worked all day, they dealt with things, and that's how life was. That's gone back and back and back, and now we can work four or five hours a day and still produce a decent income, you know. So life's changing, and maybe in the future it'll just move itself even further back. We need to fill it with interactions with other human beings and things we enjoy doing, sports and creative things and stuff like that. So I think that's real important. Yeah, I do think that any job that really involves a high level of creativity is something that is going to be safe because it's we're not at least not at a point where you can have an AI that is able to do use like creative thinking like a human. I don't know if you can reach that point, at least not for a long time. Um, so just being and I think another part of creativity is human connection like it's tough to truly be able to express yourself creatively if you don't understand other people or else you're first of all, like I don't even know how like creative that would be if you like couldn't connect with anyone else. And then anything that you create isn't going to connect with anything, anyone else. So having a human connection is goes hand in hand with creating something yeah. like using your, imagination or whatever yeah, the, the basic creation the creation of another human being that interaction that life i'll push back just a little it's amazing they have computers that they can program in all the artwork of an artist and then they can type into the computer uh, produce a piece of art that would be similar to van gogh and they produce these things and to you and i they look like amazing pieces of art they don't have the human. And I, I mean, I'm, that's just a little, there is create, it looks creative. It looks like creativity. I know it isn't. It's computer programming, but it's pretty amazing things. Uh, a lot of the articles that are now written in a lot of magazines and things like that, they're not written by human beings anymore. There's bots writing articles. They plug in enough information about an event and boom, an article comes out and it gets published. So there's a lot of interesting things out there and the limit to where this is I, we just don't know. I have no idea where it's going to go. So 
Yeah, I didn't know it was like that advanced with all the oh, like yes. AI creating. Oh, stuff AI, like I, AI is just amazing. I mean, I, every time I see an article on AI, I, I send it to myself, okay, mm-hmm. and I read it. But yeah, they if you take, there's computers where you actually program in, show them um, every piece of art that Van Gogh ever did, and explain the basics and the communication, then say, produce something, produce a mushroom in the same technology, you know, the same technique that Van Gogh used, and boom, it produces it. Yeah. It's not art. It's it's a little slightly different thing, but you know. So, yeah, yeah it's it's amazing what's going on out there. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. But yeah. I, I feel like I don't know. Maybe if you if you're somebody who's can really like tell like I don't know really into art and very like know a lot about the different details. There might be some way to like. Oh yes. Figure it out. Oh like, no no like, no. Oh. I'm, oh, I'm assuming that to a a a. A really talented artist or somebody really knowledgeable, they could tell the difference between a Van Gogh and something created by. But a lot of the writing that's going on, a lot of the other stuff, it's changing. You know, we need to hold on to our creativity. We need to hold on to that. But don't be surprised if some of it is going to be uh, changed that way. You know. So. Um, and kind of bringing it back to the, what we were talking about before with like the chip implant thing, I actually wrote a. Um, one of my kind of essays or something that we do for my psychology class about that kind of collision of like AI and humans. Um, and like, cause we were talking about like humans ability of parallel processing and stuff like that versus like the com- computer's ability to process things and how quickly um, the computer can pull up information and receive information, but how the human brain is I think better at making connections between things and then like having an understanding of stuff like that. So being able to combine those two elements um, and have a human that can have get information quickly and then use that human element to connect it to something and truly uh, like have an understanding of it, I think is something that's really powerful that like will kind of like push us extremely far in the right. future. Elon Musk says the only way we're going to keep up with computers is to be able to do this. You know, he just sees them as being able to, you know, outperform us in so many ways. He sees this as apparently the things I've read as our opportunity to keep up with them. And I do think there there's unique things about being human and we want to hold on to them. I like them. <laughs> well, um, this was a great talk. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're you. an amazing guest. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I didn't really know what to expect, but it was fun. Yeah. Enjoyed this one. Anything to say, Katie? <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Yeah. I learned a lot about artificial intelligence yeah. that I never knew. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I have a, I just have a spot all the time where I find it. I read CNN every morning, and every time I find an article that's about it, I pop it in there. There's just so much out there. You know, it's worth, it's worth not getting lost in, but it's worth putting some amount of time into and just kind of keeping up with, I think. So, well, and thank you. Thanks. It was a good time. All right. <laughs> Are we signing off now? Yes. Yeah, signing off. <laughs> good. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of the Talent Talk podcast. We hope you enjoyed.